Uh, okay, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce Andy Eaton, my next guest on the Swim for Try podcast. Andy's been a longtime friend, uh, uh, a good supporter of ours over many years. First met, I believe, on Steve True's triathlon training camp in Chesanatico. Uh, Andy goes back even further. I think you were one of the original Malta people, were you not, with Steve? I was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so, yeah way back. And, and so you've been racing for how many years, my goodness? It must be... 30, 34, I think. I think, I think my, my first race was 1988. Wow. Um, Sue, bless her, she first raced in 86. Um, and we, you know, we, we, we met through triathlon, but we, I did my first race in 88, yeah, so quite a few years. So this is this is going to be interesting because you've seen some amazing changes to the sport. You've witnessed um, evolution of equipment. You've seen race formats change. You've seen uh, you, you've seen it all, really. Pretty much, actually. I mean, in those early days, um, you know, there, there weren't that many people who were just sort of pure triathletes. Most people either drifted in from running backgrounds or, or, or riding backgrounds, and in those early days. Um, even some of the triathlons, I think, I think from memory, races like Dewsbury and Pendle when I lived up north, even didn't include transitions. You know, you did a swim, you, they stopped the clock, you, you went and got changed, you reported oh. to the bike start. So some of those early races weren't even continuous. Um, but in those early days, uh, like Steve was saying on his interview a few weeks ago, um, you, you went to where the races were, and that's that's just how it was. It's when you look at today, the variety of races, you can you can just pick and choose where you would like to race. In those early days, there weren't that many races, and you certainly just had to go to where those races were. I, that's a. I mean, my first Olympic distance goes back to London, um, or yeah, what should we call it? Standard distance, I guess. Let's um, be careful about that. Um, so to so the late. I think I did it. Yeah. To the late late nineties. I think that was either nineties. I can't remember the first. The first London was controversial, wasn't it? Because they, they pulled the women off the course um, to, to make room for the elites because of television scheduling. Um, but, but I think that was either ninety seven or ninety eight. I can't remember. But yeah, I, I did those early London ones um, through to I think about two thousand and one. I think was the last London one I did. But they've had a uh, they've had an interesting background. I mean from Simon Lessing not being awarded the car for breaking the course record because... Yes, yeah, the, I remember that. Do you remember yep. that? And then the women's elite field were taken down a dead-end turning. Some A cameraman they yep. followed went... Yeah. Um, there's been some amusing stories over the years. But what, what well, I mean, and of course, some of, the, some of the classic ones were, um, as Steve would, you know, when Steve and I sit together in Italy and start having a drink and talking about the old days, you've got the sort of continuous battles between Spencer Smith and... Simon Lesson and, and Bill Smith, Spencer's dad on the side of the road early in abuse at Simon <laughs> on the bike course. And there was all sorts of, um, you know, funny stories about those early days of triathlon. It was, uh, they, they were good days, yeah. I can even remember just, you know, it'd come to February or March and you'd look at, uh, you'd get sort of wind of, of the, or as it was back then, the BTA. Um, they would let you know what the qualifiers were. You'd get your yeah. check, checkbook out. You'd send off an application for Windsor, probably Shropshire, um, often Bournemouth, uh, London. I think a few times maybe. Yeah. And and you'd you know you'd be chasing age group selection. I mean, when did you first go overseas to race with as a British age grouper? Um, I think that was '92 um, to Canada, but. Um, 
you know, Sue and I had started racing abroad before then because um, she did Nice in, um, in, in 87. In those days, the two biggest races in the world were uh, Hawaii and Nice, um, and, and she did it in 87. So we, she, we, we went across, I think, I think the biggest race in 1990 was a televised event at Portsmouth, and we went to Portsmouth and, and raced at Portsmouth. And then immediately after the race, got on a ferry and went across to France and then drove down to San Rafael, where we raced the following weekend in a race um, in, in San Rafael, which gave us an opportunity to go and check out the Nice bike course. Because Sue was always keen that, you know, I should do Nice. And so I did Nice in 91, I think, first time, and, and then began a relationship with Nice, which went on for years, just kept going every year and racing in Nice. Um but yeah, GB, I think, was 92, I think, um, in Canada. And then, you know, from then on, it was just... Of course, we, 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 we like to do long course a lot of the time, and I think the first world long course champs were 94 in Nice, and we were there, and we did that. And then, and then for quite a few years, it was back in Nice, and then it started moving around Europe, and we, we did all those through the noughties. So, yeah, we... <laughs> We, between us, I think I think I sat down one night and calculated that between Sue and I, we had well over um, 30, 30 GB vests. Amazing. And Nice was an unusual distance back then. It Well, not unusual, but compared to what we race now. It, but it was traditional back then. You'd have a 4K swim, is that right? Yeah. And then Yeah, 4K swim, yeah. And and those were the big years of Mark Allen coming over, and, and he would often... It did, yeah. I mean, I, I raced with Mark, well, not with him, but I raced <laughs> in the same race as Mark Allen at Nice, um, I mean, that's where the distance began, really. It was um, that Nice was the traditional format of 4K, 120K, and then a 32K run, and that was the original. I think they increased the swim, I think, in 87 to, from 3K to 4K. But that race was um, established like that for many, many years, and then obviously along came ITU and adopted that race distance as the long-distance format. They called it all three. And unlike Ironman, I always found that I, I felt... If I trained well, I could race that distance and, and really had good success at that distance. Whereas Ironman just was just so so much more of a, uh, of, a of, of a it's much more difficult for an age group to race it well because of the sheer volume of training which you'd need to do. So I, I really enjoyed that distance, and we raced that distance throughout the nineties and then into the into the noughties. And and you mentioned Canada. Was that Edmonton by any chance? Uh, Muskoka. Oh, okay. Muskoka. Okay. Because there's That's been Simon won. Um, Simon won his first um, world championships in uh, in '92. Okay. We never raced long in in Canada. I only raced short, and then I raced. I think I raced the um, short. Suited Manchester in 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 the early '90s. Uh, I didn't qualify for Manchester, uh, which was always a frustration because I lived and worked there. But <laughs> I went to Lausanne in '98 when Simon won. Um, the world champs in, in, in Lausanne and Tim Dunn that year, I think, won the juniors. Um, it was quite a good trip, that. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it was about really just following whatever the worlds were, you know, going for those qualifiers. And, some, and in fact, I think from memory, I think one of the qualifications, I think, for either, well, one of them anyway, the races often were on consecutive weekends. So there will be four weekends in June and there will be a qualifier each weekend and sometimes you were chasing all four events to, to try and get a slot. These days I think they space them out a lot more, don't they? And there's, there's a lot more um, 
opportunity to sort of you know race and then have a couple of weeks before another race etc well it, it's funny that often the same locations come up and I, I believe Edmonton Canada has been utilized a few times and I think it was due again this year or maybe next um, obviously Steve always talks about the great trip to Cancun in 95 and then it cropped up again in 2002 uh, did you ever go to Cancun for for, for that no okay no I, I, I it's it, it I can't remember why. I think 2002, I, I think, I don't know. I, I, I can't remember why, but I remember not racing a great, I was checking my racing car in my rest diary actually about where I raced. But in 2002, I didn't race a great deal. I had a few medical issues and, and I didn't race a lot that year. So that we had a gap because in 2001, I certainly, we went to Denmark. So we did the Ironman in Denmark for the World Long Course Champs. And then 2003, certainly we were in Ibiza to do the World Long Course. But 2002, I didn't know. We didn't go to Cancun. Well, you, you mentioned the um, trials and tribulations trying to qualify. I remember qualifying for Edmonton uh, in 2001. And, you know, it, there were some good good battles, but I got my slot. And then when we heard that it was Cancun 2002, suddenly my mom, my sister, friends were like, oh, that sounds like a good place to go and watch a race. Yeah. And obviously, yeah. every, everyone else thought the same thing. So... Um, I remember racing Windsor and I had a bike mechanical so I didn't qualify then Ellesmere came up and I woke up with a sinus infection I didn't even make the start line then something went wrong at um, the third location it might have been London I'm not sure so then I had to go all the way to Galan in, in, in Scotland for the fourth and final yeah. qualifier Yep. Um, to get this lot because by then everyone had booked their tickets to, to go and, and, and watch the Cancun race. I mean, it wouldn't have been the end of the world if, if I hadn't been racing, but it would have been kind of amusing. But, um, but yeah, there was, it was a tough competition back then. It was, and I mean, it, there were some good athletes. You know, certainly every, every, every time I've gone into a different age group, I've always thought, um, God, it's a tough age group, this. You know, I always seemed to be racing against guys who were very good. I remember... Um, you know, Mark Booth was a great athlete. He was from, uh, I think, the Milton Keynes area. He was always a really good, strong athlete. And um, I think uh, Richard Stevens was another whose name, Preston Eckloff. These these guys, I don't think they race anymore. And that's, it's funny because sometimes when I sort of talk to Steve, it's like a lot of the guys I seem to be racing against in the 90s, obviously they don't race anymore, and yet I'm still racing. It's, uh, <laughs> and you've enjoyed success with bike time trialing over the years. That's, that's another passion. I, I still started time trialing in 1988 and um, I time trialed regularly every year through through every single season I've ever done I had to I stopped time trialing in about 2016 because as you know and, and I think you know most of the people in Italy know I'm losing my vision uh, which is why these days I have to concentrate on Aquathon because I can't see on the bike very well but yeah I, I time trialed throughout that time over sort of you know 10s 25s 50s 100 um, I, I, I loved it. I loved, I loved, I love racing on the bike. It's just frustrating now that I can't see very well. I still race cyclocross in the winter just because I love it and it's just good fun. But I, I probably, um, I don't think I'll be able to race triathlon much more moving forward on the basis that I, I, I struggle to see these days well enough to ride the bike safely. What about um, sort of a guide? Can you partner up? Is that a, 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 does that appeal? No, in fact, it's really funny. Someone said that to me the other day. They said, um, "What do you get a tandem?" And it, and it hadn't occurred to me. I remember when Sue uh, had her stroke, 
And of course, she was desperate to get on the bike, and she suggested a tandem. And I just thought, no, I can't. I don't want to ride a tandem. But, <laughs> but I have thought quite recently that uh, that is another way potentially that I could carry on time trialing and I could carry on racing. So I, I'm, I may well explore that. I mean, I certainly will because um, I, I popped into but, a. But, you know, uh, uh, it, I tend not to let my vision, uh, you know, stop me because uh, you know, I am a good pool swimmer still really at my age I'm a good pill swimmer but uh, all motor it's always a slight disadvantage because you've got to rely on your vision to get you around the course and that can be challenging and obviously even these days on the run it, it can be challenging in the wrong light conditions but I, you know I, I want to keep racing I, I, I'm passionate about racing and I want to keep going and, and I'll do it as long as I can you, you mentioned your swimming prowess. Where does that come from? Because, yeah, you, you do generally lead the fast lane on training camp when we're in Italy. Where did you grow I, up as a club swimmer? I, well, I, I swam I swam as a child, um, you know, and, and, and I got to a reasonably good standard. And I was, uh, I, I, I discovered, I think, I think you know this, I discovered rock climbing and I became a very serious free climber. And I trained obsessively about for, for free climbing and I, I did you know, hell of a lot of weights and changed my body shape into, a, you know, to, to, to suit my climbing. I did a lot of alpine climbing and things like that. So when I when I, I when I had my accident and I lost uh, part of my eye, um, and I, and I was told I couldn't really safely climb anymore, and I went into triathlon. Um, I took that upper body strength with me into into triathlon and took to swimming very quickly because I was you know very very strong and I'd got that sort of technical base which I'd, I'd had as a, as, as a teenager as a good swimmer so I, I took to swimming quite easily and still do really I don't of the three disciplines if I still count cycling it was the one I, I, I worked hard at but, but, it, but it came very naturally to me and, and you're down um, in the Eastbourne area is that right yeah I am now I, I mean I started my career in the north and we moved Sue and I moved down here um, in 1999 so I trained I've trained up with Glenn Cook for the last um, 20 years so you know we have um, we have fairly uh, you know disciplined um, tough swim sets uh, and there's a good community here in terms of um, people to uh, to train with if, if you, you know obviously I, I tend to train on the bike uh, alone and, and run alone uh, but swimming wise there's a great swim squad here who, who I swim with regularly I was going to say that is a good, uh, I mean, or perhaps not quite Boulder, Colorado, but uh, in terms of uh, some really good quality athletes and coaching, that's a great place to be. Put, I've always put an emphasis on, on, on having that really good um, swimming base because I think it does a carryover in terms of your cardiovascular fitness. Um, uh, so I've always uh, swum uh, a lot uh, and, and still do, you know, still do, which is why I can still get out of the water um, at the front of the field, really, in, in Aquathon now that I've moved across to Aquathon. And, and is that a good transition? You're enjoying that? Uh, it, obviously, it's a little I bit... I am, Dan, because when I when I realised that um, my vision was failing and I, I couldn't ride safely, um, you know, you have this thought of the fact, I don't want to give up, I'm still competitive, I still want to race, I desperately love racing. And Aquathon was ideal because, you know, I, I do struggle with my vision, um, in open water and I do struggle with my vision running um, but at least if you trip up or you are you you know hit an obstacle um, it, it's not going to be life changing whereas if you if, if you do it on the bike you know it's, it's, you could potentially kill yourself so mm-hmm. it's great to still be racing it's still great to be in, 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 in the community 
um, and I can do it relatively safely. That's a good word, isn't it, community? Because it, it really is a nice group of people um, training, racing, getting away. Um, on those lines, have you thought about Otillo? Is that something that appeals since you're sort of focusing on the swim run? Well, in fact, I think you know you know one of the girls who was in Italy, um, or two of the girls actually were in Italy with me last year who came over with me, um, Karen, uh, a former very, very good triathlete. Uh, and Jilly, of course, um, my, my former doctor, who's a, a really, really great swimmer. Both of them, are, I would love to, um, if you'll excuse the pun, get tethered to and, and do a tiller. Um, it's just persuading them to do it. But it, I am attracted to that because, um, you know, it's a continuous, it's a continuous circuit. And, and I think, you know, if you can find someone who's got a similar swimming style, uh, swimming speed, and, and, and both Karen and Jilly have, um, I reckon we, I reckon we do, could do quite well at that. Yeah, but at the moment, the focus is on a quathlon. Um, I, you know, I did the nationals last year and got a slot for the worlds, uh, which are in Almere in, in, in September if it goes ahead. I mean, at the moment with COVID, it, 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 we're not too sure if it's going to go ahead. So, but I'm, I'm training for that at the moment, and, and hopefully there will be some. I have raced already actually in 2020. That's I raced on the 1st of March, which was a frosty aquathon, and did really well and won my age group by some distance. But um, but I'm really glad I got that race in now, even though on the day it was absolutely <laughs> freezing. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. I mean, are you, uh, you, you've mentioned you drop in and out of a few groups for training. You come on the Italy training camp with Steve. You know, have you been mostly uncoached over the years? Is there someone that helps guide you? Yes, I have. I, I, I mean... I, I worked with um, I worked with Ken McLaren in the in the mid '90s, and Ken was one of the first people to sort of start thinking about using restricted heart rates. You know, doing a lot of low-level work, big bricks, three-hour rides, and one-hour runs at quite a low heart rate. Um, and then later on in the '90s, I was lucky to be invited to join um, the One Vision Racing Team. They were they were sort of headhunting good athletes at that point, and I was lucky enough to get invited to join, which was run by Chris Jones. Again, Steve oh, mentioned. Chris, um, yeah. Chris in his, uh, his interview and um, I'm very very good friends with, Shua, uh, with, with Chris he was very fond of Sue and I and, and I came on leaps and bounds with Chris because I really responded to his coaching um, Chris then went on to join um, he went as the BTA head of um, performance didn't he and he had to drop his age group athletes later on I worked with a coach called Richard Laidlaw out in France who oh, runs yeah. Sanctuary Sports I had some great success with him at long course in the mid um, in the mid uh, noughties. I've worked with Sarah Coop, Glenn's um, Glenn's wife. I've worked with Sarah for a number of years. Um, so I have I have worked with different coaches through through different times. Currently, I'm not coached, albeit sometimes I think I ought to be because I enjoy the discipline of knowing what I'm doing on what day I'm doing it. Um, but yeah, I've I've always and, and the constant force throughout that was Sue who sort of managed it all and looked after it all and made sure I was you know doing what I needed to do uh, yeah I mean some accountability it all gets us you know I mean I, I know lots and lots of swimming sessions but there's nothing quite like having somebody you know standing at the end of the poolside even for me I, I love that and, and whether it's you know um, trying to um, listen to them impress them just work hard because they're there it just keeps you in doesn't it, it keeps you accountable well, it's funny because i think it's like working with you in italy that, that, that you inspire people to to work hard so you know even even when you're tired at italy and you, you know you might i don't know 
a long ride, you might have had a hard run in the morning or whatever, you get in that pool and you know you've got to work hard because you're on poolside, you've invested in that time and, and you inspire athletes to work hard. And that's a great feeling. Uh, you know, there's nothing worse than pitching up at your swim squad session and going through the motions. I think I'm a great believer. Years and years ago, I had a coach, I, mean, I think it was Chris actually, who said, you know, we don't, we don't go out on the bike. When we go out, it's for a purpose. And we're going out with that purpose in mind to achieve what we want to achieve. And I think that's very true sometimes of swimming. I think apart from your long distance swim where it's just slow and easy, the rest of it, you need to be focused on what you're doing. Um, and I think, you know, a good coach like yourself on poolside, you, you can get performances out of yourself you probably didn't realise you could. There's a great camaraderie, isn't there, when that group comes together and, you know, you... you I think one of the, uh, the, the my favourite times is the Friday afternoon where we've switched things over so there's a chance to be in the pool for two hours and you let everyone have the opportunity to get out. But the camaraderie yeah. keeps everybody in. They all want to finish the big the big swim. Uh, I, I love that. And, and that's a great, great reflection on the group, but but also the dynamics of the camp and it all works well together. It's funny, yeah. we, I was just speaking to a sports psychologist yesterday about coaching styles and, you know, Steve's a, a lovely, um, you know, grandfather type figure everyone wants to train hard and impress him and then obviously at the, the other end of the scale I've, I've known coaches and they're very what spreadsheet driven and people react in different ways uh, and I, I sort of look at those coaches and draw from all of them hoping that you know because obviously you've got a wide range of people in front of you and that's one of the hardest things is working out who do you have in front of you and and what's going to get them working the hardest really and you've seen a lot of coaches over the years which sort of method and style has worked for you well i think because because i've always been an athlete uh, who who who's trained hard and, and often she would say sometimes you do this too hard i think what worked for me was understanding the the the, the, the essential need to make sure that key sessions were done at key heart rates so if this was your tempo run you limited it to the heart rates you were needed to do for a tempo run and stop yourself from drifting into a race pace run because if you just do hard training all the time a you won't get better and b you'll burn out so for me the revelation came i think in understanding and i think it was probably ken who introduced me to it that by slowing this right down and, and working at low heart rates especially on the run you built a base which enabled you to run faster for a lower heart rate in the long term. That was a revelation, I think, at the time, and, and it was quite forward thinking in the mid nineties. Yeah, I, um, I, I, and, I, and that's what turned it around for me. That's how I got better at Nice because I learnt that by, you know, doing those two-hour runs at a quite a low-intensity heart rate. Uh, and sometimes when I started that training, sometimes I had to stop and walk when I was training to, to keep my heart rate underneath it. But when you get your body conditioned to that, you'll be amazed then when you get to a race how efficient you become at, uh, at, at certain speeds. That's what I responded to. I mean, a lot of people still don't buy into that, do they? That it just it's just not logical. That, or, or I think the other thing people thought is like, well, yeah, it's all very well if I had 20 hours to train a week. I'd have the option to do a certain amount at a low intensity. But I've only got six hours, so let's make all six of those count. But still it can work, can't it? You can still divide that up into, you know, slower, easier stuff, work on your technique, and then do some key fast sessions, and it should still work. 
It should. I think it's being realistic about the distance you're racing over. I mean, if you've only oh, yeah. got six hours a week, there's no point thinking you can do an Ironman. And if you are going to do one, you're going to have probably a long day on the road. But So I think it's about being realistic with what time you've got. And then when you work out what time have I got to train, what distance can I actually do justice to here, it's then about building training with what hours you've got. Um, but I think, I think when I read Alistair's book, um, he talks about you're better off swimming five times a week doing 20 minutes than one session a week doing, doing you know, one and a half hours. Um, and I think there's, there's, I know that, again, going back to Ken in the early 90s, he had this idea that you should try and run every day, and you've talked about this in your swimming um, uh, uh, blogs, about if you swim seven days, even if you don't do a lot, your feel for the water is better at the end of those seven days than it would have done if you'd have done one session of 90 minutes. Oh, the, the, yeah, the training camps really reveal that. Um, I mean, I know it's not sustainable in, in everyday life, but um, there's just something about that frequency that just builds and builds and you don't get that. I mean, what, what is it I'm fond of saying? You know, one swim a week is six days of unlearning. So for, yeah. for swimming especially, uh, you know, you build on it, you don't slip back, you build, you build, you keep moving forwards. I mean, I know it's it's not so time efficient compared to the other disciplines, but if ever there's an opportunity, I, th I think that's a, a great investment in time if you are looking for a, a breakthrough. So over a long, what did we say, 34 years of racing, where has been the most favorite destination, the most favorite race, Andy? Nice. Definitely Nice, yeah. Wouldn't even hesitate. In those early days, racing in Nice with people like Mark Allen and um, Yves Cordier and, and you know, Nubi Fraser and Isabel Mouton, all those greats. Of, 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 and, the, and, and, and the Nice course is such an amazing course. I mean, that is a brutal swim. Four <laughs> kilometres in the Bay de Zange. It might look picturesque, but hellfire. There's a, there's a current out there which is, which is um, you've got to swim in it to believe it. It's such a tough, tough swim. And then the bike course in those days used to be an epic, epic bike ride. 75 miles up into the Alpmaritime. You used to climb through these incredible villages like Caros and Requesteron um, and, and, and up to Gillette. And then this run, this, this, this infamous run, which just ran flat from Nice to La Siesta and back and um, in, in scorching hot sunshine. It was brilliant. It was just, and, and I went so often, I think I, think I raced there six times and um you know they changed it later on to become an iron man i think they turned they took away certain i think they took away a certain amount of its spirit but but nevertheless in those early days it was great race but having said that i for those people who you know may listen to this who were in ibiza ibiza is a beautiful place and that course was um, was just fantastic there was this incredible moment in the morning when the athletes were walking down to the transition area sort of you know five six o'clock in the morning and meet, meeting the people who were coming back from the clubs <laughs> at that time and there was this meeting of these people they couldn't believe what we were about to do in relation to the long course triathlon then um great memories great memories really I mean, credit to the Nice race, you've just listed a, a roster of, you know, literally who's who of triathlon. And yeah. it, it sort of was our Kona, surely, and, and testament to the race that those top names would come over from, well, to visit from around the world, wouldn't they? Oh, yeah, I mean, the start list at Nice, I mean, if you look at 91, I mean, they had, in the, in the race, they had Mark Allen, uh, Rob Burrell, uh, Yves Cordier, Wolfgang Dietrich, Scott Molina, Scott Tinley, 
Tina Lee, uh, Dave Scott. Dave Scott, of course. I was just in the Mendrith. You know, the women had uh, a newbie Fraser, Isabel Mouton, Tessa Besna. Um, it was an incredibly stacked race in relation to some of the world's greatest athletes. Um, it was slightly, you know, it was before it was before the sort of Ironman World Series, if you like, where it was going, you know, Ironman now has a race everywhere. But, you know, it was slightly earlier than that. And, and, and a lot of the qualifying races for corner were all, were all based in America or, you know, some of the European races rarely had corner slots. So that was slightly beyond most people to get to unless you had lots of money. Um, so Nice attracted a, 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 an incredibly strong field, you know, good good British athletes. I mean, people like you and I, I'm very friendly, and you know Nick Kinsey. You know, Nick Nick went to Nice a lot, and um, Mike Lockwood, you know, people like that, they, they, they went to Nice. And of course, in 94, when it was the very first inaugural World Championships, you had that scenario of uh, Simon Lessing was the, I think, um, Robin Brew was the, there was there was quite a stacked field in terms of um, the Brits at that particular time. So it's always attracted the world's best racers, yeah. France has had a, a, a really nice relationship with triathlon over the years, and they had a really, I mean, I'm not sure if it's quite so evident now, but, you know, a, lot, a real interesting club structure where some Brits would go over and actually sort of be based with French teams and they would travel yeah. and race against each other. It's interesting how that worked out and why that sort of model didn't take off elsewhere, really. Well, it was interesting because I, I, I remember um, when I, I talked earlier about the fact we went to this race in San Rafael in 1990, there was a story going around. Uh, Simon was there. So I think Simon Lessing won it. Um, but he slept in his bike bag, I think, you know. <laughs> but, but these guys just lived and went from race to race because the French, they race for money. Uh, even in the mid yeah. in, in the mid noughties when I was based out in France a lot with uh, Richard uh, saint we went to quite a, an innocuous race um, um, down on the, on, on the French course near the Spanish border. And, and, and it, 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 you know, it was just a, a local race. But when you got there, um, the, the, the race was absolutely stacked with um, top <laughs> French um, racers. I think Sophie Delaware, is it Delaware or Delamere? Um, she she won the women's, you know, because they raced for money. And so there was a, a professional circuit of, of, of great athletes who were just going around week on week, just racing in France and making a living. Chris McCormack's book goes into detail uh, about him coming over from Oz and sort of taking part in that circuit if, if anybody wants a little bit more information about that but the, that was some good tough race and you're right about you know sleeping in bike packs and things that's tremendous yeah <laughs> oh yeah good yeah. <laughs> they, were, they were good days yeah they were yeah Andy we could and even I think I mean I recently I, I because after after Sue had a stroke in 2012 we, we had to calm down the sort of race especially in Sue's case but then we started going to nice places to race. I went and did Alpe d'Huez and went back to Almere and did, you know, did the half there and things like that. And, um, you know, you still, you still have got this opportunity to have nice races in dramatic places. But in France, I, I, when I went back to, um, to Alpe d'Huez, I was in the transition area and I, was, I went across to talk to Eve Cordier and Eve was still racing. He was doing, he was doing Alpe d'Huez. I had my photograph taken with him, and it was such a joy because obviously, I'd, you know, I'd seen this guy racing Nice in, in the early nineties, and uh, and how fiery! I mean, I think he was in my age group, which at that time was <laughs> fifty five, fifty nine, and I think he still finished top twenty overall. It was an awesome performance. So, 
these guys are still racing and they're still good. I think people will sometimes forget. I mean, obviously, the pre- we're preoccupied with Ironman brand. We're preoccupied with challenge to an extent. But there are some amazing... I mean, I've done Wildflower, which is another bucket list event yeah. um, over just south of uh, San Francisco. Yeah. And things like Laguna Phuket, I don't know if it still exists in its original format. You know, you've got... Um, uh, or oh, where else? You've just mentioned sort of the Alpdue truck, where they 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 stop the turbines on the in the reservoir or, or whatever it is that. Yeah, the the, the lake. I, I have to say, I, I, you know, as a, as a swimmer, that is the most beautiful lake I've ever swum in because uh, it's high up. Um, uh, it, it, it's used for hydroelectric power. So yes. one day, yeah. well, one two days a year because the. the Day one, they have the long course. Day two, they have the short course. Two days a year, they allow swimming in it. They shut the turbines down and they allow this race to go ahead. And, of course, it's all on closed roads. And um, there's just something about France. It just has a, a much more egalitarian view to racing. They just <laughs> shut the town down and you get on with the race and it's just great. It's Britain's got problems in terms of, you know, you can't get a road closure and people don't want to be stopped from going to the garden centre. And, and <laughs> it, it's... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I raced, I don't know, I did. I used to race a lot uh, to Roger Wakelin's races through the noughties, and I, I remember doing a race, I think it was in Winchester, and I was on the run course, and I was running down the path, running out of town, and you went past the entrance to a garden centre, and I literally, I can't pulled out, and I had to jump over the bonnet like a hurdler. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in France, they just shut the whole town down. There's some great, exciting races to be had in France. Anybody who wants exciting races, just get hold of a French triathlon handbook for a year and look at the places where they race because they do some phenomenal races out, out there in France amazing and it's, it's been a remarkable trip down memory lane for someone that um, inspires me I, I love to train and, and coach you um, 34 years and, and you've been all over and, and bless Sue it was a lovely um, partnership the two of you racing and you met through the sport sadly she's no longer with us yeah um, but it's yeah. lovely that she, you, she um you keep racing and, she and broke a lot of people's hearts I mean obviously mine but um, there was a lot of people who couldn't believe when, when we lost her so quickly and um, you know when you, I, you came to the funeral and um, and, it, and it was incredible that at that funeral there were so many world class athletes and uh, you know Olympians uh, who, who, who touched her life um, and she, she was such she was an, an inspiration force. Um, I mean, do you, do you remember the I'm, beach? I'm missed, yeah. Do you remember being on the beach when she sort of did her first sea swim after the comeback from her stroke? Yeah, uh, that, the, the, everyone that was, was in such tears. A, <laughs> a, a bizarre moment because obviously she 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 had this relationship with the sea where she just loved the sea and when and when after a stroke I I had to reteach her how to swim and and you did a lot of work with her in the pool to get her back to swimming standard and she got back to reasonable standard but the one thing she wanted to do was get back in um, the sea and we had that moment in Italy where we went down that evening and got her into a wetsuit and um, we got her in the sea and she, the, the look on her face, it was just, she was absolutely euphoric and uh, she came out and broke down into tears. Oh. She, she sobbed just through sheer joy of the journey she'd gone on to get back to a state of fitness. And do you remember there was a Dutch lady on the beach uh, who had nothing to do with the camp whatsoever, <laughs> who, who sort of cast upon this uh, this scenario of this woman who was heartbroken. She just walked across to her and hugged her. And she hugged her for quite a while and everybody else was stood around sobbing themselves because they knew what she'd been through and everything else. It was such a, a memorable moment, really. It was, uh, I'll, I'll cherish that uh, thought and 
that lady was ever so kind. Yeah. Oh, well, amazing stories. Andy, at time's almost up. I really appreciate a trip down memory lane with you. Um, all good luck with plans for the future, and hopefully we can get to Italy again in the not-too-distant future.